I'm excited uh, because we are starting a brand new series today called Rhythms of Life. And we are looking at what um, it looks like for us to spend our life uh, as the aim of this Christian life that we have, walking with and resting in Jesus, to live in his presence, to discover him and pursue him and to know him more and more. And as believers, this is uh, the highest pursuit we have as followers of Jesus Christ, and that is to know Jesus more and more. It is a, it's a marker, if you will, of being a disciple. I think it's why Paul wrote in Philippians chapter 3, he said, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ. Paul said, everything is lost. Nothing weighs or has value like the worth of knowing Jesus. Why? Because that's the highest pursuit we have as disciples, to grow in the grace and knowledge, Peter said, of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And what we're going to discover in this series is that God has given us rhythms uh, or uh, to enrich and nourish that walk, rhythms to help us pursue and know Jesus. So what is a rhythm, right? Rhythm defined is a regularly recurring sequence of events or actions. That's what a rhythm is, right? Now, I'm a musician. Uh, I, I led worship for two and a half decades. I grew up a child of the 80s, so I love, I feel like I have a lot of rhythm, uh, ex except when I dance. And when I dance, uh, which no one in this room will ever see, ever, uh, but when I dance, I, I don't look like I have rhythm. I, I look like there's something wrong with me and that I may need some help and, uh, or, or that I've lost my adult. Sometimes it looks like that, you know? And so, um, I don't look like I have rhythm, but I feel like I have rhythm. And when I'm by myself in the car, I have a lot of rhythm. Uh, but that's what a rhythm is, right? It's just this regularly recurring sequence or action. And what we're going to find is that God has given us rhythms. He's given us these regularly recurring processes that facilitate our growing in the grace and knowledge of him. And here's what we call those rhythms. We call them spiritual disciplines. We call them spiritual disciplines, right? And some of those disciplines are inward rhythms, and that's what we're going to look at kind of through the first uh, part of this series. And then some of those are, are disciplines that are expressed outwardly, but the spiritual disciplines are the rhythms God has given us to know him and to grow in him. And what are those? Well, there's no set list of spiritual disciplines, right? I think all the time believers want us to, to, to just have a set list. What are the things that I need to do here? All the Well, there's really not one, but it includes things like reading God's word, memorizing scripture, um, uh, being in gospel community, praying, fasting, being generous, journaling, whatever it might look like, these are spiritual disciplines. These are things, spiritual habits, if, if you will, that give us the means, they position us to know God and to grow in Him. And listen, God is an infinite fountain of knowledge and discovery. We could have a thousand lifetimes and we would never plumb to the bottom of knowing everything there is to know. He's an infinite fountain. Has anyone in here ever been to Niagara Falls? Anyone ever been there? Oh, good. Y'all are the first ones all day. Y'all are the first ones who are, I think have left the state of Texas all day. So well done. Um, so 
Niagara Falls, I've never been there, but I've seen these videos. And if you've ever watched videos of Niagara Falls, it is a powerful thing to be near. Am I right? It is loud. It is roaring. And here's why. Let me give you a few numbers. This is probably the most famous waterfall in the whole world. And here's why. There are over 3,000 tons of water that flow over the edge of that fall every second. Now, if that doesn't give you permanent eyes crossed, I don't know what will. That's a lot of water. That's a lot of water. 3,000 tons. Almost 800,000 gallons of water every second go over the fall. And there's places along the fall where the water, when it hits the bottom, hits with 2,500 tons of force. And as this flood, this powerful thing happens, it generates 4 million kilowatts of electricity. That's a powerful force. Now, I want you to imagine that we're at Niagara Falls, and I hand you a teacup, and I put you in a, a tiny little kayak or a little dinghy, and I kick you out into the middle of those falls, and I go, hey, you see that overwhelming flood, that 3,000 tons of water, 800,000 gallons of water, 2,500 tons of force? I want you to take that teacup. I want you to find somewhere in there you can get a drink. It's going to be hard to do, right? But God is that kind of powerful force. And so one of the things we have to wrestle with is how do we connect to that? Because see, if God is still that powerful force and he is, he's that overwhelming flood of discovery and knowledge and love and grace and all those things that, that we're commanded to grow in, how do we connect to that? Because in John 7, Jesus said, yes, it's an overwhelming flood, but I want you to come and drink. So how do we connect with that? We do that through the spiritual Disciplines, spiritual disciplines are the grace-empowered habits that allow us to tap into the flood of the knowledge of God and drink from the living water that Jesus talked about with the woman at the well in John 4. Remember he said, if you knew who was talking to you, you would ask me and I would give you what? Living, how do we tap into that? We do that through the disciplines. These are grace-empowered habits that allow us to tap into the flood, the knowledge of God. But before we spend the next several weeks kind of unpacking what these spiritual disciplines are, I think it's important that we start with understanding why they are so important. For many of us, we look at spiritual disciplines and they've kind of taken on something that we do for God. They're a checklist that we mark off as we are walking as disciples of Jesus. But I hope what we discover this morning, I'm praying what we discover in the weeks ahead is that our relationship with God is not built on what we do for him. This is very important. It's something we'll say over and over again this morning. Your relationship with God is not built on what you do for him but rather who you are in him. It isn't built on what you do for him. It's built on who you are in him. Why? Because our God is a God of relationship. It's a God of real. He's a God of relationship. My children, just like your children, there is nothing they can do that make them more my children. There's no thing they can go do. There's no habit they can build. There's nothing they can do that causes them to be more my child. They are my child simply because of who they are. And the same 
is true in our relationship with God. Our God is a God of relationship, and what he desires most is a close, personal presence with his people to be with us. I think it's why you see in Genesis that he walks with Adam and Eve in the cool of the garden. I think it's why you see when uh, uh, the, the Hebrew children are in the desert and they're wandering for 40 years, he's with them with a cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. I think it's why his presence was always in the tent of meeting, no matter where it went, and it was in the temple so that he could be near his people. It's, we see it over and over and over again in this promise where he says, I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. What's in that promise? The desire for nearness, for closeness. It's why in Ezekiel chapter 48, the Hebrews gave him the name Jehovah Shema, which means the God who was there. Because God desires nearness, personal relationship with us. And I think this is most clearly illustrated in the gospel, right? Is there a more pointed declaration of God's desire for relationship with us than the work of Christ on the cross? What is the, what is the gospel except that we were separated from God because of our sin, he being holy and us being sinful, and we were separated from him, and we could not bridge that gap. And so in his great desire for relationship and nearness and proximity to us, he sent Jesus to die for our sin, and as we trust in that death and resurrection of Christ and rest in him as our Lord and Savior, we are restored back to God. Even the gospel demonstrates this about our Father. But most of us, and I'm including myself in this, most of us do not walk with God as a dynamic presence in our lives, even though that's what he desires most, to be a, in a close presence with us. But we don't walk with him. We often uh, live believing that our nearness to God and his presence in our lives is built around what we do for God. Now, y'all don't leave me hanging. Am I talking to anybody other than myself this morning? We believe that somehow God's approval of us, his proximity to us, is based on our performance for him. But I want you to hear me say God's, God's presence, his approval, his nearness does not swing on the hinge of what we do, but rather on who we are. If you are in Christ Jesus, you are sons and daughters of God. And according to God's word, co-heirs with Christ because of the blood of Jesus. And what I'm praying we discover through these weeks and starting today is that these spiritual disciplines, these uh, grace-empowered habits have nothing to do with a checklist and everything to do with connecting us and positioning us in the flood of God's presence. That's what they do. So I want you to grab your Bible with that in mind, and let's go to John 15. John 15. We're going to start in verse 1, but I want to catch you up a little bit uh, to where we are. 
Jesus, uh, these first two chapters before John 15, so 13 and 14, uh, Jesus has been in the upper room with his disciples. We see him wash their feet in 13, and then in 14, he begins to have the conversation about how I'm going away, but I'm going to send the helper who is the Holy Spirit. And at the end of 14, he says, now let us rise from here, let us go. That's the last verse of John chapter 14. So they leave the upper room, and now they begin to make their way to the Garden of Gethsemane, where we know Jesus is going to be arrested. He's going to be betrayed and arrested. And so what you see over the next few chapters, starting in 15, is a conversation that Jesus has with his disciples as they make their way from the upper room to the garden. And here's what they would have done along that journey. As they went, they would have passed vineyards. They would have passed orchards. They would have passed these wine vineyards, which were spread out all over the landscape in that area. They would have walked by the temple doors, and on the temple doors, they were, they were covered in gold. And embossed in gold, you would have seen grapevines and pictures of grapes because it was in such important imagery for the, the Hebrew people. So it was on the temple door. They're walking by all these vineyards and grape orchards and all of this stuff. And it's with that as the backdrop that Jesus says in John 15, 1, he says, I am the true vine and my father is the vine dresser. And every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean because of the word I have spoken to you. Abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine and you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers, and the branches are gathered and thrown into the fire and burned. But if you abide in me and my words abide in you, you ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. By this, my Father is glorified. Never blow past a phrase like that. When Jesus takes a minute and he says, truly, truly, or listen, or by this, God is glorified. When you see those words, ears need to perk up because he's about to say something important. By this, my Father is glorified. So what is it that brings God glory? That you bear much fruit. And so prove to be my disciples. As the Father has loved you, sorry, excuse me, as the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in His love. These things I have spoken to you that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be full. Here's what we see right here in these verses. Ten times, ten times in these 11 verses, Jesus uses the word abide. This is going to be an incredibly important word as we navigate through the rest of our time. It comes from the Greek word meno, which means to dwell, to be present, to remain, to endure. That's what that word abide means. It, 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 the implication is one of a settled commitment. I'm Abiding means I'm remaining, I'm settled, I am committed. So that when Jesus says to his disciples, abide in me, he's inviting them to come and be present with him, to come and be near, to come and endure with him, to come and know him. And as they come to know him, come to know themselves. 
And that's the same invitation he is giving us today to come and abide, to come and dwell with him. Listen, to come and rest in who we are in Christ. Abide in me is not an invitation from Jesus to come and work for him. Abide in me is an invitation to come and rest in him. That's, that's what he's saying, and that's the invitation he's extending. And so this is where I want us to focus uh, the rest of our time this morning is answering the question, what does it mean to abide? What does it mean to abide? And there's three things that I think we discover in God's word this morning. And the first is this, abiding in Christ means I can rest in his approval. I can rest in his approval. Look again at John 15, verse 9. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. Those are powerful words. Those are transformational words when we come to understand them and and live in them. Jesus says the love that I have received from the Father, the love that I rest in with him, the perfect love that I have known from before the foundation of the world between he and I, I am in full measure holding nothing back, extending that love to you. Now think about that for a moment. Think about the treasure of the words, as the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. It is to say that Jesus has everything that he has received from the Father, he extends to us. Every drop of acceptance and approval, he extends to us. He says, God has loved me, that's the way I love you. He has fully given to us what he has fully received from the Father. And what did he receive receive from the Father? He received identity, he received approval. That's what he received. Now think with me for a moment. What would transform if you're in your life if you never struggled with who you are and you never struggled with if you were accepted? Wow. But that's the words Jesus is saying. He is saying, the identity I've received, I'm extending to you. The approval I've received, I'm extending to you. And where do we see that he gets that identity and approval? We see it in Matthew chapter 3 when Jesus is baptized by John the Baptist. He comes up out of the water And what does God say? God said, this is my what? Beloved son. That's who he is. That's your identity. And whom I am well pleased, that's his approval. And Jesus has said, the moment I heard those words, I spent the next three years extending that to you. We are children of God, sons and daughters of God. That is who we are. And because that is who we are, he is pleased with us. We are approved, which means what? It means we do not work to earn God's approval. We work from God's approval. We are already approved in Christ. It's already ours. And when we begin to see this, it begins to shift our vision of everything. And suddenly the goal of this life as a disciple has nothing to do with trying to measure up and everything to do with learning to rest in. Is there anybody else in this room who would confess they have wasted days and years of their believing life trying to measure up? And that's me. 
trying to measure up. And Jesus has said, no, you work from approval, which means you're not trying to measure up. you got to learn to rest in. And when we do that, when we begin to rest in the approval we have because of who we are in Christ, suddenly we are liberated from the incessant need to try to earn approval. We, we get to forfeit that. We don't have to try to earn that approval, but when we stay in that place where we are trying to keep these spiritual habits and disciplines because we want God to approve of us, here's what happens. We become the child who is perpetually begging for his father's attention. We become a child believing that we have to perform well or he's not going to approve. He's not going to look. He's not going to pay attention. But I want, to, I want to tell you, our God is a good father. And can I just tell you this morning? You don't have to do anything to beg for your father's attention. You don't have to beg for the attention of your heavenly father. He is good and he loves you and his eye is fixed on you. And because that's true, because that's who we are in Christ, we can rest in that approval. We are not working for his approval. We are working from it. It's the foundation from which everything else flows. Abiding in Christ means I can rest in his approval. Here's the second thing. Having rested in his approval, I can endure his pruning. Endure his pruning. Look at verse 1 and 2 of John 15. Jesus said, I am the true vine and my father is the vine dresser, and every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, what does he do? He prunes. Why? So that it may bear more fruit. Jesus said, every branch that bears fruit, God will prune. So what does it mean to be pruned? When Carrie and I were in seminary, we were at Southwestern. If you've ever been to that campus in Fort Worth, it's really beautiful. Campus is 100 years old, very mature trees, and they keep it very well manicured. And I remember walking to class one day, and as I walked by, there was these really beautiful, lush rose bushes. And the groundskeepers were, to my I understand, I'm no gardener, okay? I'm, I do not have a green thumb. I have uh, the thumbs that make living things die, whatever, that, whatever color that is. That's the thumb I've got. And so I don't know what I'm seeing, but as I'm walking, these groundkeepers are cutting away. It looks like they're just hacking these rose bushes. And I'm like, what are you doing? The, these are beautiful. They're tall. They're full. Well, what they were doing was they were pruning. They were cutting them back. And what I discovered was that if they didn't prune them, they would... They would never grow as tall and as full and as lush as they should. In other words, pruning leads to flourishing. Pruning leads to flourishing. So while God says, I'm going to prune those that are bearing fruit, what is he, what's he saying? He's saying, I'm going to take you through a process of cutting back so that you can flourish and thrive even more. But I want to tell you something, and this is a hard truth. Pruning is rarely an enjoyable process. It is rarely an enjoyable process. Why? Because cutting back 
burning away is almost always going to involve pain. It's almost always going to be a trial. It's almost always going to be some form of suffering. So how do we endure that? We have to stay in the vine. We have to abide in the vine. And while we are abiding in the vine, resting and knowing that we are approved, we are accepted, we are loved, that positions us to endure whatever the trial he's going to walk us through so that we can cut back the stuff that's grown on us that's hindering our growth, that's hindering the production of gospel fruit, that's inhibiting staying connected to the vine the way we should, and we can cut that back so that we can begin to thrive and flourish for him. Listen, it, it involves pain. It may be involved suffering. It may involve trials. So why does God choose that means to prune us? Because what I've, what I've discovered to be true in my life, and I bet you've discovered the same thing to be true, is that when I go through seasons of suffering and of trial... It's in that season that my idols are revealed. Are you with me? It's in that season that my sin is exposed. Anybody else? Don't shout me down while I'm preaching good, all right? It's in that season that what I have made a priority that shouldn't be is seen. What I have drawn hope from that was worth less than the heart of Jesus is all of a sudden laid bare. I read an author, uh, author this week who said, your circumstances and your suffering do not create what's in your heart, but rather it is the stage on which what is in your heart is revealed. And man, that is true in my life. That's why God prunes us. That's why he takes us through that process. That's why it's called the refiner's fire. Because it burns away things that shouldn't be there. It's why James 1, though, when we read James 1, verse 2, James says, consider it all joy when you face what? Trials. <laughs> That's always been one of those verses that just makes me want to close my Bible and go, nah, he didn't mean that. He did not mean what he just said right there. That's just one of those that's a, it's a head scratcher for me. Consider it joy when you face trials. How can I do that? How can I face trials and suffering and count it joy? And the answer is on my own, I can't. If I'm not abiding in the vine, then the pruning process only feels like punishment. But when I abide in the vine, it moves from punishment to refinement. And now my suffering is a gift. Now my suffering has vision. Now the trial I recognize is God doing something. It's not for nothing. It isn't wasted. God doesn't waste anything. Do you believe that? He doesn't waste anything. Pastor Matt, you don't know what we're going through. I know this. If you're going through a season of suffering, God's doing something in it. He's not going to waste it. He's, he's pruning. He's cutting back. 
He's trying to pull out the idols that are slowing your growth. He's trying to pull out those sinful habits that are keeping you from abiding in the vine. He's trying to pull out those things that are worth less than the heart of Jesus, but they're keeping you from producing gospel fruit. If he loves you, he's going to prune you. So, so how do we deal with that? You got to abide in the vine. You abide in the vine. Because here's what the rest of James 1 says. It says, consider it pure joy when you meet trials of various kinds. Why? Because it is going to produce steadfastness and completeness in Christ. Abiding in Christ means I can rest in his approval and I can endure his pruning. Because this leads to the third thing. It positions me to produce fruit. To produce his fruit. Look at verse 4 and 5 of John 15. Jesus says, Abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. He says, I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do what? Can do nothing. Jesus draws a direct line from abiding in him and enduring and remaining in him to producing gospel fruit. He says, apart from him, we can't bear fruit. Why? Because a branch cannot bear fruit on its own. It can't do it. How many of you would consider yourself a, a legit gardener? I've confessed. I've been honest. It's okay. It's not prideful. I've been yelling at pride already this morning, I know. But who would consider yourself a pretty decent gardener? Anybody? One person in the whole room. Come on. Come on. We got some, yeah, we got some gardeners in here. You put something in the ground. You know what to do to make it come up. All right? So what if you were to go home and find the, the best bloom on your best rose bush and you cut it off? And instead of, though, putting it like in your home to display or giving it to someone, instead you just took it and stemmed down, stuck it in the ground. What's going to happen to that, that bloom? Is it going to immediately become a brand new thriving rose bush? What's it going to do? It's going to dry up. It's going to die. You're going to hit it with the mower on Thursday and no one will ever know it existed. Right? Why? Because it cannot thrive apart from the vine. It cannot reproduce itself. It can't make more blooms. It can't bear fruit apart from the vine. The vine. But yet somehow, listen, this is the approach many of us take in our walk with Jesus. We work and labor and try to produce something that looks like gospel fruit, but really we are withering away because we haven't stayed connected to the vine. Apart from proper connection to the vine. There can be no reproducing of what the vine produces. And we have been commanded to produce gospel fruit. Amen? It is a command that we have. Whether it is the fruit of evangelism, whether it is the fruit of the Spirit, whether it is the fruit of generosity, whether it is the fruit of, of kindness and justice, whatever the fruit is, we have been commanded to produce Fruit. Colossians 1 says we are to bear fruit in every good 
work. Galatians 5 says, here are the fruits of the Spirit. These should be produced in your life. Matthew 7, Jesus said, every healthy tree is going to bear good fruit. Why? Because bearing fruit is the natural outpouring. It's the natural outcome of abiding in the vine. It is what happens. You do not have to force the branches of an apple tree to produce apples. They produce apples because they're connected to the tree. They're connected to something that, that can only make apples. So if the tree makes the apples, the branch can't make anything else, but they can make that. As we abide in the vine, we cannot produce things that are other than the fruit of the Spirit and the fruit of being a disciple and the fruit of evangelism and the fruit of justice. Why? Because that's what is produced in the vine. That's what the work of Jesus Christ does in our life. It positions us to bear fruit. Jesus is our source. And as we live our lives abiding in that source, we come to see that producing that fruit has little to do with how hard we work for Jesus and everything to do with who we are in Jesus. So let me ask you this question. Does that mean that the Christian life doesn't involve work. No, it involves work. That's why Paul called it a race. He said, I'm running a race. I'm laboring in this thing. It involves work. But listen, our work doesn't increase who we are in Christ. Who we are in Christ increases our work. Are you with me? Who I am becomes the foundation, it becomes the fountain that what I do pours out of. And what I pray we transition in our mind and in our spirits as his sons and daughters over these weeks is that we stop trying to work for his approval. We stop trying to work for his presence. We stop trying to work for his proximity and his acceptance. And we begin to understand that if we are in Christ, we already have those things. And what happens next as we understand that is the production of fruit. When we abide in the vine, we rest in his approval. We can endure that pruning even when it's hard because we know it's doing something and we can produce gospel fruit. So here's the question that I have for you this morning. First question is, are you in the vine? Are you in the vine? Well, what do you mean by that? I mean this. Have you made Jesus the Lord of your life? Are you a believer in Jesus Christ? Have you had that moment in your life where you recognized you were a sinner, that you needed a Savior, and apart from Jesus, you couldn't save yourself, that you were separated from God, and you needed a Savior, and you put your faith in the finished work of Jesus, making him the Lord? Have you done that? Are you in the vine? If not, we have a decision table this morning set up in the lobby. And what I would ask you to do when we exit, if you need to talk to somebody about what it means to have a relationship with Jesus, when we go out these doors, I just want you to come right back to that table and connect with one of our staff. Are you in the vine? Here's the next question. Are you abiding in the vine? If you are a believer in Jesus Christ, are you resting in who Jesus says you are? that you are accepted, that you are approved. Maybe this morning you, your confession would be that you're in a season of pruning. You say, I, I know who I am in Christ. I, I'm resting in that. 
But he's taking me through a season of pruning. He's taking me through a season of suffering, of struggle and of hardship and of trial. And if that is true, I want to encourage you, don't lean away from it, lean into it. Don't ask God to bring it to an end. Ask God to reveal what he's doing in it. He's not wasting it. It's doing something. He's producing something in you. On the other side of it, he wants a disciple with deeper roots. He wants a vine of branches with more fruit. But how's he going to get you there? He's going to walk you through this process. He prunes those that he loves. And the pruning is the evidence of his love.